Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this afternoon, our, talk, our, our conversation is about the Naraguegas River watershed. And we've got some wonderful folks here um, by Zoom to help us with that. Um, Jacob Vandersandy is um, the land protection uh, manager for Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Welcome to you, Jacob. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Chris uh, Federico is the Habitat Restoration Project Manor, Manager for SHARE. I'm glad you could be with us, Chris. Glad to be here. Uh, Dwayne Shaw is the Executive Director of the Down East Salmon Federation. I'm glad to have you with us, Dwayne. Thank you, Ron. And Paul Anderson is the Executive Director of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Um, glad, glad you can be with us, Paul. Good to be here, Ron. And Art Tatangelo, Jello, um, selectman from the town of Cherryfield. Um, thanks for joining us, Art. You're welcome. Um, perhaps each of you, starting with with uh, uh, Jacob, could provide a little uh, kind of thumbnail sketch of of uh, you and your organization, um, so we l- listeners can um, have a sense of who's who's talking here on Talk of the Towns. Jacob, could we start with you? Sure. Thanks, Ron. So I I work for Maine Coast Heritage Trust. We're a statewide land conservation organization. So we work primarily along the coast, but we also have a Maine Land Trust network program. We support land trust throughout the state. Uh, Maine Coast Heritage Trust has, we're going into our 50th year actually, and we've protected 152,000 acres across the state of Maine in in collaboration with our partners. We have over 140 preserves that we open to the public. Um, And so my my role is in, in Washington County. And so I'm a, I share Washington County one, one other project manager, and I, you know, basically do land acquisition to provide, you know, ecological, recreational community benefits from the land. Um, I'm also a fisheries biologist, and I started my career working for the Maine Atlantic Salmon Commission in Cherryfield on the Narraguegas River, and was fortunate enough to be there for the last three years of, of the salmon fishery. So I, I experienced a you know, a, a thing of the past in some ways, but it was it was a beautiful thing to see the the long history and and the you know of these fish and got to handle these fish in my hands. And so I really have have a long history with the Narraguegas River and a real love for the river. Great, Chris. Uh, Project Share has been um, working in this um, kind of arena for many years. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved, and and what is uh, Project Share. So thanks, Ron. Uh, Project Share is. Uh, nonprofit organization that was founded in 1994 uh, by mostly commercial uh, commercial landowners um, what we're they were trying to do is is get ahead of the curve before the listing of Atlantic salmon and uh, so we've been working since then to uh, enhance connectivity work mostly and now we're beginning to move more into um, reestablishing quality salmon habitat. Uh, we mostly work in the down east area, so the five down east rivers, um, the Narraguegas being one of them. And our main focus area at this point is the upper Narraguegas, so above Beddington Lake all the way up to the headwaters. Um, I started um, while I was still in college working um, in as a contract worker with project uh, with Maine DMR and uh, so we were out in the rivers every day monitoring salmon populations and the opportunity arose where I could split my time between project share and uh, Maine DMR and so that's what I've been doing for did that for a few years and now I am working full-time for project share and just recently became the executive director. 
uh, oh, the first good. of the year. Good. So that you, you've had the, the salt and the fresh water with DMR's experience. Well, D, uh, for salmon, DMR only works in fresh water. Okay. Yeah. 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 The salt water is more handled by, uh, by NOAA <laughs> Fisheries. Okay. Uh, Dwayne Shaw. Dwayne, uh, introduce yourself a little bit and, and some background on the Down East Salmon Federation. Yeah, so as you said, I'm executive director of Down East Salmon Federation. We're based in Washington County, and we were established in 1982 by the salmon angling groups um, from the Denny's over to the Narraguegas. So that included the Denny's River Sportsman's Club, the Two Rivers Salmon Club, which was the Machias East Machias Club, Pleasant River Fishing Game Conservation Association, and the Narraguegas Salmon Association. And um, I also studied as a fisheries biologist at UMaine Machias and began my career in 1981 as a summer intern working with the Salmon Commission. And that included on the Narragorgas River, where I, at that time, there were a lot of salmon fishermen and you could see salmon in the pools, um, in the cold water areas where they were holding and so on. So it was... Uh, you know, a great introduction to all of what's involved with salmon conservation. The organization has um, lobbied and and had projects underway since 82 to support conservation of salmon and other sea-run fish in the rivers that support them. And that includes um, two hatcheries that we operate in former hydroelectric dams, dams that we've removed and helped to remove on the uh, Pleasant and the East Machias. We run a land trust program, work closely with Maine Coast Heritage Trust, the Nature Conservancy, Danish Coastal um, um, Conservancy, and, and other groups. And we do habitat restoration work, water quality work, and advocacy work. So currently we're advocating, for instance, that the salmon be put on the state list of endangered species, which it currently isn't. Great. So thanks for that background. Uh, Paul Anderson and, and listeners to WERU might recognize Paul has um, um, a music program uh, um, as well. So glad that you can be with us in your professional ca- capacity as well. Um, well. A little bit of background on yourself and, and Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, Paul. Sure. Thanks very much for having me, Ron. Yeah, I'm the executive director now of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, which is based in Stonington, Maine. Uh, we, the organization started about 18 years ago um, by Robin Alden and others in the Stonington area who created this nonprofit to look out for fishery sustainability. At the time, it was called the Penobscot East Resource Center. Uh, the organization's name changed in 2017. And when Robin retired, uh, I, I got the job to take the helm in 2018. So I've been there a couple of years uh, working with the small staff right out of Stonington. Our footprint really is Eastern Maine, so we work. Our, our work relates largely to Hancock and Washington counties, and um, we really focus on bringing local voices and knowledge into science and management policy and education. And uh, we do that through collaborative research projects, collaborative management initiatives, and uh, some of our education programs. Um, I work. We're one of the members of the Downey's Fisheries Partnership, so I work closely with Jacob and Duane and some of the thinking around this special part of Maine. And uh, and I look forward to talking about some of what we see the connections between the upland and the river systems with the marine systems. Great, thanks. And uh, to Tango Gentilo, um, you're selectman at the town of Cherryfield. A little bit of background about yourself, and and uh, we'll ask you about Cherryfield as well. Go ahead, Art. You need to unmute yourself. <laughs> situation here, I guess. But uh, if you hear me, um, I'm on the board in Cherryfield. I've been on the board for 20 plus years. You know, the board really does not have a lot to do with the river. Um, we do own the, uh, the Alive um, um, run and, um, and make some money off of that each year. Um, and we are responsible for maintaining the dam. 
Tell us a little bit, Art. Tell us a little bit about the town of Cherryfield for our listeners. Um, they probably have passed through it, um, but perhaps only um, along the main road. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of, of Cherryfield. Um, it had, uh, it was a, a food processing um, hub for many years, still is. Uh, tell us a little bit about Cherryfield, Art. Well, Cherryfield has a very long history, and at uh, at uh, one point in time, there were probably a dozen dams along it, providing wood to build Boston and up and down the coast. Um, it was uh, it, it had electrified system because of these dams very early on. Um, it's, uh, it has a long, long history, a lot of uh, big old houses that were the homes of the, of the mill owners. In fact, at, at one point in time, the mill owners had a, uh, a yacht club on an island in the Narraguegas Bay. Huh. There's about, uh, we have a population now of about a thousand people and, uh, and, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good time to live in. <laughs> great, great. Well, I'm going to turn back to Jacob to give us, um, some background, then the rest of you can kind of, um, uh, fill in, but, uh, Jacob, if you could give us some background on the river and the watershed, Narraguegas is a kind of a storied, um, <laughs> has lots of traditions, including what many of you have mentioned, um, a tradition of, of having salmon runs. But uh, give us some background, Jacob. Sure. So the Narraguegas River, I'll start out with a little little geography. The Narraguegas River, obviously, it flows down from, so it starts out at Eagle Lake. It's about 53 miles long, so it starts out above the Stud Mill Road, runs down through Beddington, Du Bois, down into Cherryfield, and then flows out through Millbridge and out into Narraguegas and Pleasant Bays. Um, it's about 232 square miles. And I think a real unique feature is in the is sort of the middle section of the river is the Blueberry Barrens. So a glacial outwash delta from the last ice age that sort of makes a unique situation that is very good for growing blueberries and also provides a lot of cold water that really benefits the, the cold water fisheries. Um, it has a long history, as, as Art sort of said, that goes back over 10,000 years where the Narraguegas was a focus, both a source of food, an important source of transportation. You know, the Passamaquoddy tribe used this area extensively and they burned the blueberry barrens and took advantage of that. And of course, the diadromous fish were, were a focal point, you know, in the times of year when the fish were there. That continued on through the colonial era where the Narraguegas you know, within when the colonists got there, they started and used the river for food and transportation, but also, as Art pointed out, for power. You know, at that time, the rivers and the flowing water was really the only source of power. And so there were dams built very early on. And that did impact the, the fisheries, you know, that, that did block the fish. But people understood the value of those fish because it was an important part of their diet. And then, you know, in time for recreation and, and economic value. And so there's, there's this long relationship between the humans and this river. And it really provided, you know, that's why the town of Cherryfield is where it is. It's focused on that river. It's not on some hill in the distance. It's right there. And so that, you know, that continu had continues to this day. But with the building of dams and the changing, we've certainly lost some of those resources. Historically, you could fish for Atlantic salmon. People came from around the country and around the world to fish for Atlantic salmon. That's no longer the case. They can still go and fish for shad there. The Elwife run, as, as Art pointed out, is still managed by the town and brings both revenue to the town, but also bait to the lobster fishermen and food sources. Um, so, so uh, yeah, the river, I think, is really a part of the identity of the region. And, and it flows down through Millbridge and out into the ocean. It provides bait and food resources for all of the, for the marine species as well. And it's really 
really an amazing resource for this region. And Maine Coast Heritage Trust um, is using the term whole place. Um, and, and I think we all of us have, have kind of recognized um, Maine Coast Heritage Trust interest in, in conserving land. Um, you've kind of taken it um, in this, in this um, effort to looking at both the human and natural populations of, of a river, river system. Yeah, so Maine Coast Heritage Trust has worked for 50 years along the coast and, you know, protecting both ecologically and culturally the coast of Maine. And we realized back in 2013, if we were really to do this effectively, we needed to maybe broaden our scope that that rivers are just essential to to both the ecosystem and the communities in the region, and that maybe we needed to look inland a little further. So that that you know taking that holistic perspective and really if we're going to be successful over the long term at maintaining the lifestyle here and the, and the ecosystem that we were going to have to broaden so we looked at 30 or 40 rivers statewide and we narrowed it down and narrowed it down and, and we have basically three rivers we're working on and the Narragwagus is one of them because of um, its history its opportunities there are still salmon trout elwives shad blueback herring all in this river, but also there are some challenges. As Art pointed out, the town owns the ice control dam. And while there is fish passage there, it does inhibit the movement of fish into the river. So we saw that as both a challenge and an opportunity. And, you know, and a real strong, you know, a strong community connection to the river. And those folks were were on board with with trying to improve the situation. We'll come back, I think, to talk about the, the, the role of the ice dam and, and what plans are um, there. But um, let's um, hear a little bit more from Chris um, about the role of Project Share and uh, particular interest in the Narraguegas. Uh, Chris, I understand if you weren't here with us on the phone, you might be looking at the river and looking at woody debris that um, you're trying to, to uh, put into the river to increase um, the, the diversity um, and, and, and tell us a little bit about why Project Share would be working on things like that. So our main focus um, has been connectivity work and as of last year, we've completed approximately 99.5% of the connectivity projects in the upper Narragwagas. So that's our main focus is above Beddington Lake. Uh, we work very closely with state and federal uh, biologists to determine where we should be working and what and what projects we should be doing. And uh, the upper Narragwagas is really the their, their top priority. For, so when you say connectivity, what kinds of projects that w- would you take um, take up to improve connectivity? I assume that's um, dams in some cases, culverts. Um, what else? What, what what kinds of work would that entail? Yep. So most of what our projects are are stream road crossings. So uh-huh. culverts that were improperly installed in the uh, whenever when they when the commercial landowners started. Harvest, commercially harvesting and stopped using the river as transportation and started using trucks, mm. they would uh, stick a culvert in and didn't really take a, into account, you know, the elevation or, or, or any of that or the size of the, the, the culvert itself. So we go back in and we replace them with um, larger open bottom structures generally or even bridges. And that way they can actually uh, maintain uh, flow throughout the year plus they can actually most of them can handle up to a hundred year flood so a hundred year recurrence flood um, we designed our, our, our structures for mm. and we work pretty closely with the landowners and uh, yeah like I said we've we've completed about 99% of the projects up there I think we have two left to do oh that's so great. so moving on from there the next challenge is, is rehabilitating the, the habitat, the, huh. exa- uh, the, the riffle run sections of the rivers where, where most cold water species such as brook trout and Atlantic salmon like to uh, uh, where they live, basically, where they spawn, where they live, where the juveniles live before they, they head out to sea. So because of the log drive era, uh, a lot of these reaches are very wide and quite shallow which increases the water temperatures um, 
And it also, the gravels are very embedded with uh, finer materials. So what we try and do is bring in used wood, which should be naturally in the river um, and was removed during the log drive era. So we bring the wood back in and we're trying to reintroduce more and more wood to try and break up that embeddedness, allow groundwater to start re-entering into subsurface um, to cool the reaches, plus trying to narrow the river overall, which will increase the depth. Um, so basically we're saying that um, when the river was used um, really to support um, commercial logging by um, running logs down the river, it was kind of a super highway <laughs> and it became, yeah. um, uh, you know, not a natural uh, free flowing river. So now the work is to see what you can do to repair some of, of that, uh, turn it back into a, a river that would support um, fish and other species. Correct. Yep. So, uh, Dwayne, uh, tell us a little bit more about your um, organization's uh, interest in the Naraguegas. You said you got your start in many ways on the Naraguegas. Um, what's your interest right now? Well, we have a, a number of programs. We're taking a very comprehensive approach to the recovery work for the fisheries and the, excuse me, the connection to the community and the uh, overall ecosystem. So we're addressing a number of different things at various, in various ways, such as restocking the river with salmon, using methods that are innovative and, and new. And those methods seem to be working well on the East Machias. And we're intending to begin to stock um, par, which are the young salmon, about three inches long, the fingerlings, and to put those in the river, but raise them in such a way that they have a greater likelihood of survival, which is what we've seen on the East Machias where we're doing this. And then we do, um, like Chris, we're in Project Shear, we're a member of Project Shear, we're involved also in doing some projects on our own, which are you know, culverts, replacing culverts, and, and we're involved with the dam issue there at the Ice Control Dam, so there's a study underway there. Um, beyond that, I mentioned our land trust. We own about four miles of river frontage on the Naraguegas and somewhere on the order of 1,400 acres there and probably eight miles of trout stream that are within our ownership and we're continuing to receive more properties and purchase more properties. So we have a goal of, of protecting the, the buffers along the river um, to restrict development and and improve water quality as a result. So there's a lot of um, elements to watershed management, fisheries management, and we're essentially involved with all of them from research to uh, regulation, fly encouraging catch and release fishing and um, changing the bag limits on bass. And, uh, and then sort of the broader sense of community engagement. We're involved in the schools with the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the salmon in the classroom program where kids are raising fish in their classroom salmon and then releasing them in the river, doing um, educational programs around insect life and water quality, pesticides and all these various issues. So, and this goes beyond just salmon. It's, uh, we're involved with smelt monitoring smelt populations in the lower watershed. So there's a whole lot of things that we've been doing and we've been doing it for a long time and it's been a successful model and we're, we're trying to ramp that up. And um, a, a lot of this land that we own has been given to us. So um, other people understand the value of this landscape and the aquascape, the water really is the focus and and so we have a lot of support from the towns and from individual landowners along the along the river. Mm, great. I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to talk of the towns. We're having a conversation, um, albeit without uh, listeners, because we're pre-recording this program, uh, a conversation about the Naraguegas River watershed. Um, in the studio with us, um, uh, 
figuratively, not literally, are Jacob Mandersandy of Maine Coast Heritage Trust, Chris Federico, Habitat Restoration Manager for Project Share. You've just heard from Dwayne Shaw, Executive Director of the Down East Salmon Federation. Um, also, Art Tatangelo, Selectman of the Town of Cherryfield, and we'll hear from him in a minute. And also, Paul Anderson, Director, Executive Director of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Paul, we've mostly been talking about the, the Upland uh, River. Um, you kind of represent interest um, as it um, mixes with saltwater. Why? Why would you be interested in in the freshwater side of things? Um, because the main center for coastal fisheries primarily is concerned with with the saltwater. Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Um, well, of course, our mission is to um, help sustain marine fisheries, commercial fisheries, and the communities that depend on them. And um, <clears throat> Narragansett being one of many important rivers and watersheds that are flowing into the saltwater and into the Gulf of Maine. Um, is part of the bigger system, and we see those connections that uh, that um, Chris and others shared that are you know physical reconnecting in the river systems. There are also other biological connections that we know are important to um, the estuaries and the marine systems. And uh, essentially, it's a, it's a big energy um, cycle that involves the movement of carbon and nutrients in and out of these water systems from the upland into the ocean. And that's often manifested through predator-prey relationships. And so as, as our colleagues here on the call are talking about the, the recovery of diadromous fish species, those fish also spend a fair amount of time in the ocean. And in all likelihood, they become part of the food web where they sit on that predator-prey um, web it depends on their their own life cycles, but trying to understand how the fisheries in the Gulf of Maine uh, play out over time and can be sustained is more than just regulating the catch. Which you know your listeners know that the ground fishery, for example, has had struggles in this part of the North Atlantic um, for many years, and we tend to regulate catch. But we are also at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries very interested in understanding how the ecosystem and the changing ecosystem has perhaps been a, an important factor in and how those fisheries have struggled and will also be a factor in how we can recover and try to get them back to sustainable levels. So um, the, one of the species that um, makes that connection um, is the alewife population. Um, Paul, staying with you for a minute, um, how do alewives fit into that larger system when they're um, out to sea? Well, we're, we're trying to prove that right now. In some of our work, we're doing some interesting collaborative research with fishermen, uh, capturing codfish and other ground fish, and we can analyze them and understand what they're eating. We can look in their bellies, and we can also do other analysis of their tissue, and we can determine whether there's a signal of alewife in their diets. And that will be important as we look at um, the, that relationship and whether that's you know a, the role of adult alewives in the marine system or more likely the juveniles that will leave the river systems later in the year and how do they fit into that food web? We can we can do analysis that helps us start to make those connections of of you know how are these uh, tiny fish becoming food for the the larger fish, and uh, and what does that mean to the the health and and the dynamics of species like cod, haddock, pollock, halibut, and you know things that that are are familiar to your listeners as as seafood. And the alewives play a different role too, because in addition to the um, when they're free swimming, um, f larger fish might eat them, um, but they're also used as lobster bait. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that dynamic um, that you're, you know, lobstermen are part of your constituency. Um, they're looking for 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 bait. Sure, as Art mentioned earlier, um, some of the towns and certainly in Cherryfield, there are commercial harvest of alewives, which are going either into a food system for smoked alewives and others, but a lot of it going as one of the alternatives for the lobster bait. Um, the, the, lobster, the primary lobster bait has been Atlantic herring, 
there are struggles with that population and, and quota limits that are uh, perhaps creating a constraint on um, bait availability. So lobstermen are creative and they use different species and some of them do favor Elwife. And so we think that, you know, recovering the Elwife fishery and making that opportunity for some of these towns to make a little income and uh, be a contributor to the bait supply perhaps helps to alleviate some of the pressure on the herring fishery as well. Well, let's go to um, Art for a moment and, and ask a little bit more about the Elwife fishery. Um, coastal communities from colonial times have had the opportunity to manage um, uh, alewife populations for um, local harvest. Art, tell us a little bit more about how that works in Cherryfield. Well, because of the uh, ice control dam and the fish ladder that is there, Cherryfield has a really good system for catching the allies because they all come up the fish ladder. Uh-huh. Um, if you, if you have never been to Cherryfield and seen this in action, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, the, uh, fellow that has been running it for us for the last, I don't know, probably 20 years, Ricky Santer, you know, has, has built, uh, a system that, that the fish come up, they can they can see them prior to them actually going into the to the cage that that will lift up and they take the fish out so they even before they get to that final stage they're able to look in there make sure there's no fish in there that are illegal for them to sell and rake them out and put them into bushels and away they go on a on a good day for the not for the allies for the fishermen <laughs> um they'll uh they'll get between 200 and 300 bushels of alewives now there's a period every week where the system is open, and every fish that alive that comes up the fish ladder is going up the river to spawn. And I believe it's yeah. Some of the biologists here would know better, but I'm pretty sure we leave that open from Thursday night till Sunday morning. I believe it's 48 straight hours every week. Um, and um, there's a, a great spot way, way up the river um, where bog, bog branch lake is, where there is another fish ladder. You can go and see these schools of fish going up the ladder with no mechanical means or anything it's it's pretty impressive to see a, a, a school of fish and and um what does uh, the town of cherryfield have to do to kind of keep its its license to manage you um, as you say you practice con uh, conservation by allowing uh, free flow of alewives upstream are there any other things that you need to do to keep track of of uh, the number of fish for instance there's the, the the town doesn't have any rules okay it's all comes from the state okay um, we they're 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 not going to put us in charge of this we're just you know just a little town here um uh, they're they're they're, <laughs> they're uh they're keeping an eye on it okay okay so so um alewives are and and i and you you derive income the ch town of cherryfield derives income from the sale of the bushels of alewives so yeah. it, it helps the town budget a little bit it does right so alewives are are used for lobster bait as we've spoken but uh duane shy you've been you've been among those who are promoting um uh, alewives as a human food source, kind of going back to colonial times when they were part of the diet. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you'd smoke an alewife. Right. 
Uh, same way you would smoke the salmon or any other fish, and it's and it's a simple method, and it can be done at home, it can be done commercially, and and at one time, really sort of ending in the, the late '60s, I believe there were many, many smokehouses all throughout New England and beyond, and and every general store had alewives available for sale. So stores in Cherryfield and Blue Hill and and Bucksport or you know, any any place along the, uh, the coast, especially, you could find these fish, and they were imported in into the inland as well and distributed by people in those regions. So, and in fact, they were canned. Um, in Jonesport, we have examples of labels of commercial canned alewives, like a like a sardine. Um, herring are these are all part of the herring family, and so they're just like kind of an overgrown sardine, um, and and very good for you in terms of the fatty fatty acids that they contain and so on. So. They're a bit of a chore to eat, which is part of the the process and the heritage and sort of um, the the way in which it's that you eat the fish requires it takes some time. So you could classify it as one of the slow foods in that sense. <laughs> Great. Well, what other species are important? Art had mentioned that there's um, an opportunity to look into the, um, the fish cage to make sure that there aren't other species that they shouldn't be taking out. Um, Dwayne, you've mentioned swel- uh, smelt. Um, I think, uh, Jacob, yeah. you'd mentioned other species. What other important, besides salmon, of course, what other species are important? What are, are you looking at? Well, in particular, shad and endangered Atlantic salmon in this case, and and they're also um, native sea lamprey traveling up through there in in great numbers as well. So it's quite a job to separate them all out and and not inadvertently capture salmon and and kill it or um, impinge a a shad that is just the right width to get stuck between the the grading bars and so um, those allowing the smaller alewives to swim up through a graded system so that they're the only fish being captured such that the shad can get up by the salmon can get up through and uh, sea lamprey can get up through historically there were a lot of sea run brook trout here and when the dam was built it's said and this is kind of the local knowledge about the situation that that dam essentially destroyed the sea run brook trout um, ability to navigate the river because they're not particularly good at dealing with fishways and certain fishways in particular. So there, there are a lot of things that play at any fishway, especially in the main stem river like this, where you, you have endangered species and so on. So there's, there's a study underway to, to look at ways in which that could be improved and, and to address all of the fish species that exist there. Great. We'll turn back to uh, Jacob. Um, Chris has described um, the work that Project Share has done on the upper watershed to improve connectivity. Um, there's a there's a focus among all of you now on the the ice dam. Talk a little bit about the history, uh, Jacob, of that ice dam and and where does it stand now and and how are you thinking about the, the future of that? Sure. So the Narragansett River, as Art pointed out, you know, historically late 1800s, early 1900s, there was as many as a dozen dams on the in the river and, and seven or eight right in the lower river section. Um, so right where the ice control dam is, there was a Stillwater dam and that dam blew out in the late 30s or early 40s. And there was a period following that in the 40s and 50s where there were a number of floods in downtown Cherryfield. So in the spring of the year, ice would move down river and it got just down below town and it would hit the estuary and the ice was there and the ice would jam up and there was flooding in the downtown. So multiple homes and businesses were flooded over a period of years. They did a study in the 50s on on ways to control that and the Army Corps of Engineers did not think that there was there was anything they could really do, 
but there was political pressure and basically um, money was allocated from the federal government and the Army Corps of Engineers built the dam on the site of the Stillwater Dam. Basically, the town said, when the Stillwater Dam was there, we didn't have floods, we want it built back. So they built a dam, basically establishing the same water level as the Stillwater Dam. It is uh, a wooden crib and stone structure, it's creosote beams, and it was built in 1962. Um, initially, it did not have a fish ladder in the design, but the town of Cherryfield and others advocated for a fish ladder. And so there is a, what they call a Daniel style fish ladder on the side, in, you know, built into the dam. And the idea is that it creates a head pond that they may capture the ice that comes downriver and that it doesn't wash downstream. Um, the problem with that dam has always been that it delays the fish. The fish come up against that dam, but depends on water level, but they can't necessarily find their way into the fish ladder. Some species navigate a fish ladder very well. Um, some species do not. There's also years when there's more water flow and the salmon can just swim right up over the dam itself. Um, fast forward, you know, so I guess I started my career there and I watched those fish being delayed there. And so back in 2014, we had a meeting with with all the players involved, the Army Corps of Engineers, DMR, um, the town of Sherryfield, and many NGOs, and basically decided that this was an issue, that this dam is sort of outdated technology, that there's other ways to address ice jam flooding, and that that would have less of an impact on the river. So that we started a process, worked with a bunch of the NGOs in the town to raise money, and the Army Corps of Engineers is in the middle really kicking off the serious phase of a feasibility study to look at the different options to provide that flood protection for the town, but at the same time to improve fish passage, recreational opportunities um, for, you know, and, and it's also a park. It's a town park, that whole area, and it's a it's important public access point. There's a lot of activity, whether it's elwife harvesting, historically salmon fishing, shad fishing, and so really creating a better situation for everyone. So you're in the, they're in the midst of that study um, now. Um, when might we see results and what would be ne next, pre presume next steps? Um, they're going to do the feasibility study in earnest in 2020 and 2021. And then um, there will be presentations by the Army Corps to the community and everyone involved. And they'll, you know, there'll be a, a group of, you know, that will sort of select the preferred outcome and then you know, then there would be, be design and construction. So we're still talking, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a while out, you know, five, six years out before we really see any changes probably. Sure. Anybody else want to add anything to um, the, the uh, conversation around the ice dam? Well, can I throw something in there? Yes, please go ahead. You know, when this dam went in, it was, it was controversial at the time uh -huh. because because of the salmon, I do believe. Now, this is, a long, this is before my time. But I do believe that Cherryfield owns this dam. And I think when this dam went in, it was voted in. I mean, the selectmen didn't just do it. It was voted in at a town meeting. Right. So to, to, to alter this, I suspect that it will have to go to a Cherryfield Town meeting again. Now, I'm not positive about this, but maybe somebody on the board knows, knows more of the history than I do. But uh, um, so, so yeah. you're looking you're looking for the Army Corps to come up with some options, and exactly. you'll be part, and you'll be part of the conversation that says, okay, which options. Um, shall we take? How can we pay for it? And and that and that's going to be from multiple sources. And and what's the benefit of those alterations to the people of Cherryfield as well as to the river and the and the species? Exactly. Right. I mean, is, has a dam ever been taken out that wasn't controversial? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a fight. Unfortunately. So um, Paul has, has said that he'd like to kind of draw a parallel between the uh, town of Cherryfield and other towns who manage an alewife population and the other 
kind of kind of opportunity to locally manage something, and that's um, the clam population. Clam clams are a species that have a kind of a joint management structure, or the possibility of one. They're certainly a, an important economic source and a source of food. Paul, give us give us that parallel, if you would. Yeah, well, I just wanted to make the point because one of the parts of our mission at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries is to try to explore how local voices and communities. Um, fishermen, citizens can participate in, in a co-management kind of a system. And there's a continuum of what that looks and feels like. But one of the neat things here in Maine is that there are two species for which there is actually legislated co-management opportunity between municipalities, towns like Sherryfield, and the state. And those two species are alewife and the intertidal shellfish population, primarily soft shell clams. And so there are there are agreements and ordinances of sorts that kind of set up the, the parameters by which a town can can set harvest levels, can set license numbers, whether we're talking about the clam fishery or or how the alewife uh, fishery is prosecuted, that gives towns some authority, there's some responsibility there. They have to do some monitoring. They have to report their catch in certain ways. They, and uh, there's a little bit of uh, biology that goes there. And I'll just speak real quickly about some efforts we've been doing in the um, Blue Hill Peninsula area on the Bagadus River system, where there hadn't been an approved alewife fishery for many years. And in order to get approval from the state, um, there needed to be some policy shift uh, not just at state government, but at what's called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is all of the states between North Carolina and Maine that are looking at some species that have that broad range, including alewife. And so we did work with local communities to measure and, and count alewife returns over several years recently and have, have been able to kind of crack that 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 um, wall of getting into the alewife game for these towns in the towns of Penobscot, Brooksville, Sedgwick, um, and Castine on the Bagadoos have been participating. And it's been really neat because we've been able to help make some transition in policy that allows for a local harvest. So there's a small scale harvest happening this year in parts of the Bagadoos system that wasn't in play before. And it, and it took towns to step up and be part of that, um, that data gathering. And now, you know, we're helping them to kind of sustain that and make sure it's credible and make sure that they indeed can harvest sustainably without taking too many fish. Mm, great. Um, again, I, I, um, this is the time during our regular programs before the pandemic that we'd be inviting listeners to call. We don't have listeners on the line um, at this point. Um, it seems like um, you're describing a, a river system that has had many uses over um, time from uh, the Native American population to the colonial population to more modern day um, uses. Um, the collaborative efforts that you're all involved in are, are beginning to um, return the Naraguegas um, to a, a more healthy state. Um, and so the, the ice dam represents one of the last um, kind of hurdles there. Are there other things um, that, uh, that, uh, local people are paying attention to in terms of making sure that the Naraguegas kind of returns to a healthier state so that um, species like uh, Atlantic salmon can use that more effectively. What are the other issues that you think might be working on, you might be working on in the future? We'll start with with uh, um, uh, Jacob here and then kind of go down the list. Thanks, Ron. I So a couple of things I, I think as Chris pointed out, Project Share has been very active in the upper watershed, and you know, 98% of the of the culverts have been replaced and, and are fish friendly. There's still a lot of work to do in in the rest of the watershed as we get down below Route 9. I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve fish passage in those locations. Another piece of of their work is this idea that large wood has played an important role in these rivers for thousands of years. And because the river was essentially an industrial wood delivery system, that's really changed. Um, only in the past, you know, only more recent times have we really changed laws around timber harvest and so on. But there's not enough, there's not enough trees, large trees growing up on the side of the river to then fall into the river and, and return the river to a more natural state, state in which these species have evolved over time. And so we as, as a land conservation organization are looking at ways 
to to put easements or to acquire property along the river where there's critical habitat to then protect that forest and let that forest grow up. And, and as Dwayne pointed out and Chris pointed out, maybe actively add wood to the river. But our goal over time would to be to ensure that that riparian buffer, that section of forest along the river was allowed to grow large and to start to fill some of those natural roles that it did for thousands of years. Mm. So both you and Chris have mentioned that all of you have talked about the, the quality of the, the water. That's uh, both in terms of, of um, dissolved oxygen, uh, temperature, uh, sediment. And w what I hear you describing is how can we make sure that um, you're, you're continuing to improve those. Uh, Chris, what, you, what would you add um, in terms of project share, um, assuming that you're able to, to successfully uh, deal with the ice dam? What are the other kinds of things that you'll continue to work on on the Narraguegas? Chris? So for the foreseeable future for us um, at Project Share, our main focus is, go is going to be on um, large wood boulder additions, trying to increase the habitat productivity. Um, it's been noted in a lot of scientific literature that basically anything over double digits for smolt production. So in a unit of habitat, if we can get above 10, 10 fish going out to sea, we should start seeing some, some real positive results. Um, so a lot of the habitat in the upper Narragas, which is some of the, the best in the river, is down to four or two fish that are going out to sea um, or even less. So our main focus for, for, for the foreseeable future for at least five, six, ten years is going to be trying to take new methods, use old methods, and mix them together and try and get as, um, this habitat back to a productivity level that, that fish can actually, uh, salmon especially, and brook trout, can start um, really getting a self-sustaining population to get back together. Um, and so then, go ahead. And go then ahead. once once we're we're get the upper Narragansett back, then we can start moving downriver um, into some of the the more habitat more habitat that's down below the lakes. Um, but our main focus right now is the upper upper river. Great. And so again, to to, to kind of recap, um, anadromous fish are fish that spend some time um, in saltwater. They go upstream to spawn. They're using the upper reaches of the watershed um, um, to to kind of reproduce and and have lots of babies. <laughs> and some of those are going to return to sea. And you're trying. You're saying you want to get those numbers up. Is that right? Right. Correct. Yeah, we want to get as many fish going out to sea, so that. In theory, <laughs> if we can pump enough fish out, we'll get enough coming back. Right, uh, right. But marine survival at the moment is is fairly low. It's been seemingly on the uptick a little bit, but uh, it's only been a couple of years that it's been doing that. So, great. Well, I'm keeping track of time. We've got just about five, uh, six minutes left. Um, uh, Dwayne, what what will you be working on with the Downey Salmon Federation uh, briefly as we as we look to the future? Sure. Yeah. And in addition to the things that we've already talked about, there are some other issues and, and one is mining. Um, one is irrigation. Another is pesticides. Another is sewage treatment, um, acid rain, pH issues. So just to go through those quickly in terms of mining, there's a very large peat mine in the watershed. It is and in violation of its discharge and and chronically for decades. And there's an engineering puzzle to figure out there in terms of how do we prevent um, mine waste, essentially it's peat moss, from going out into the surface water of the of the nearby stream. So that's that's something that has to be addressed. Irrigation issues have been huge there in the past with um, sort of modern blueberry practices. And at one point in time, just just around the time of the listing, there was water being extracted directly from the surface waters so from, from the river stream, ponds and lakes. And that's been um, addressed 
pretty well. I think that there's room probably for additional improvements there. Um, pesticides, as Jacob mentioned, huge areas of blueberry um, agriculture, and and we have documented some issues, um, and I believe it's been uh, reduced quite a lot, but um, there is still pesticides in the groundwater, pesticides in the surface water, and those things need to be addressed, herbicides as, as well as pesticides. Switch treatment, um, cherry field is part of what's limited the development of cherry fields has been identified in the comprehensive plan and is that there isn't a sewage treatment plant there. So um, these overboard discharge cluster systems are are not ideal for water quality and not ideal for landowners and future development. pH is another one. We mentioned acid precipitation. has been a very long-term study in at, at Bear Brook and, and that's led us to the conclusion that some remediation of of base cations, the buffering capacity of the river would be appropriate. So there's the short list of some of the things. (laughs) No shortage of things to to work on. Um, uh, Paul Anderson of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, um, have you got some future orientation in terms of the uh, the Naraguegas and and its connections to to the ocean? Yeah, well, Narragagas again is an important watershed, and you know we've um, we've picked that out among uh, a half a dozen others in the region to focus some conversations with local practitioners and, and citizens, and then with the science community and regulators to explore what we call ecosystem-based fisheries management. We're we're in year two of a really exciting partnership with DMR and NOAA. To, to poke at the ecosystem-based fisheries management concept in new ways. And we think we've got a really great opportunity because of the wonderful work you're hearing about on this call to bring these social elements, the human factors together with the ecological factors and not just manage fish by counting fish, but really understand how they interact with one another, how they interact with their ecosystem and how humans are a part of that system. We call it the Eastern Maine Coastal Current Collaborative and it's uh, just taking root now and we'll be coming to a town near you to to try to talk about local interests and and being part of that conversation. Great, and uh, last uh, word to, to Art. Um, selectman there in, in Cherryfield, what what will you be watching um, uh, as, as a town official? Really anxious and looking forward to the plans that the Army Corps comes up to alter or whatever yep. with the, with the dam. That's a that's that's a big thing for the whole river. Great. Well, I want to thank you all. We've come to the end of an hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Uh, podcasts of our program can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle on Humane Sea Grant, 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again so much to our guests in the studio, Jacob Vandesandy of Maine Coast Heritage Trust, Chris Federico of Project Share, Dwayne Shaw, Executive Director of Downey Salmon Federation, Paul Anderson with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, and Art DeTangelo from the section for the town of Cherryfield. Uh, Thanks to those of you who listened. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for helping to engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, your producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.